Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. President Trump didn't just wake up suddenly one day and decide to tweet about the World Cup. This was calculated and strategic. A not-so-subtle reminder to countries, aka voters, about quid pro quo and the mutual scratching of backs with the U.S. Hello, sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we will be discussing the full press to secure the Joint Bid World Cup in 2026. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment. We'll be answering your questions in our Ask Alexi segment, and we will continue with our World Cup date segment, plus a whole lot more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mr. Mossy, how are you today? I am good. Uh, no jersey today. I'm wearing a Flamengo warm-up kit. This was a gift from my former radio partner, Eric Winalda. He claims it belonged to uh, this uh, legendary Brazilian player, Junior. I'm still waiting for a gift from you, so it is 1-0 Eric Winalda on that Do score. Do we believe the claim? Do we care? Yeah, I mean, it, it enhances it if, it's, if it belongs to... <laughs> Just believe it, man. Just, yeah. you got, you got to believe it. Well, it looks, it looks really good on you. Speaking of, of, of soccer, which is what we do on this podcast, obviously, I come to you a mere hours after the finish of the very first ever home game in the new Bank of California Stadium here in Los Angeles. LAFC defeating uh, the Seattle Sounders 1-0 on a, on a, has to be, say, a gift from Stefan Fry, the goalkeeper for Seattle. Uh, the game was not very good on the field, but really this was a celebration and a moment around the field. And I tell you what, if you have not been to this, and many of you haven't because it was only the first game, if you get a chance to go, go. It is the most expensive stadium ever built for Major League Soccer or for soccer in the United States. And it has all the bells and whistles. It has more bars than I have ever seen. There are more bars per capita in that stadium than any stadium in the world. Everybody has their own bar. Uh, I don't know if they're going to win a lot of games or score a lot of goals, but nobody is going home thirsty from that stadium. It is something to behold. For an old guy like me, my friend, it warms the cockles of my redheaded heart to see something like this. It shows how far we've come. It doesn't solve all of the problems on or off the field, but I'll tell you what, when you see this type of of Jewel in Los Angeles that's going to compete with the Los, uh, Los Angeles Galaxy. It was a fun night to be a part of, a fun historic night to be a, a, a part of. Uh, are you looking forward to going? I am, yeah. Now, I have to ask, what kind of guy is Will Ferrell? I did not meet Will Ferrell because I was upstairs with John Strong doing the actual game, but uh, he was wonderful on our set. And every time he goes on television, it's, it's a really interesting balance because everybody expects someone like him. you got to be funny. And he is. But he's also... 
very sincere and emotional, passionate about this incredible thing that he is part of. And he is, he, there is not just ownership in terms of money, there is ownership in terms of passion and heart. He loves this team. I think he loves being a part of something in Los Angeles that is unique, that is resonating with the people there. So he, he, he is all in. I will, before we, before we move on, I will say this caveat. The, it's a brand new stadium, so everything's new. Traffic was fine, the lines were fine. They're gonna work some stuff out here and there as they go forward. The unfortunate part of the night, if there is an unfortunate, and this is unfortunate, is that the chant that, uh, that happened, that we know so well that happens all over the world and in different places, reared its ugly head again, the homophobic chant, and that's not a good look for a brand new stadium and for a brand new team. Let's see if they go and they do something about it, because as we know, it's, it's easier said than done. And a lot of times when you tell people not to do something, they want to do it more, despite how vile it is and how many people don't, uh, don't, don't want to ever see it again. So they got some work to do to, to clean up their act off the field in terms of that, um, that environment they are creating. I was going to ask you another Will Ferrell question, but you took it to a serious place there, so let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, good things on and off the field going forward for, for Los Angeles for, and for LAFC. All right, Mossy, we are ready. Should we light this candle? Yep. All right. As always, we start with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it is time for my State of the Union, the moment when I look at the state of soccer as it relates to the U.S. Last week, President Trump voiced support for the U.S.-Mexico-Canada joint bid to host the World Cup 2026 when he tweeted, The U.S. has put together a strong bid with Canada and Mexico for the 2026 World Cup. It would be a shame if countries that we always support were to lobby against the U.S. bid. Why should we be supporting these countries when they don't support us, including at the United Nations? Now, was this a threat? Yeah. Did it violate FIFA's policy on no political interference? Probably not, but it did push the envelope, which is exactly what President Trump does. He took a page literally out of his own book. In The Art of the Deal, President Trump talks about his 11 tactics in business. Number five, use your leverage. And that's exactly what he and the Joint Bid Committee have done. World Cups are big business, and despite FIFA's efforts, they are always political. And yes, the Joint Bid helped orchestrate this. POTUS didn't just wake up suddenly one day and decide to tweet about the World Cup. This was calculated and strategic. A not-so-subtle reminder to countries, aka voters, about quid pro quo and the mutual scratching of backs with the U.S. Horse trading is nothing new for politicians, diplomats, and those in business, albeit often with more tact and discretion. Back in 2010, the U.S. bid for the 2022 World Cup. We lost, and we looked naive and idealistic. Fact is, if you're not willing to push the envelope, and I'm not talking about stuffed envelopes, you risk losing. Yes, POTUS is a polarizing figure. And there's an argument that Trump's support is more of a hindrance than a help. But a World Cup bid is not for the faint of heart. You don't get votes for being nice. Having the President of the United States engaged and supportive of a World Cup bid is a good thing. This is bringing the big dog in. And he's being used for his bark as much as his bite. But ultimately, he's being used to get the job done. And that is my State of the Union for this week. All right, David Mossy, thoughts on what I said? Well, I would argue Trump's involvement is a hindrance. Bear in mind, he's not even going to be president come the summer of 2026. That is something that needs to, yeah, we need to talk about, yes. Uh, but the most interesting thing you said there was uh, that the U.S. looked naive uh, in their bid for the 2022 World Cup. Can you expound on that a little bit? Well, look, 
I think uh, we went into a fight, as they say. This fight was a fight where you needed to bring in, let's say, you need to be heavily armed. We brought a, a knife to a what is it? What we brought a fist knife fight to a gunfight. A, a knife to a gunfight. There yeah. you go. That's the thing that I was uh, that I was talking about. And look, uh, we we stood on principle, and I, I like that to a certain extent. But in doing so, what did we achieve? And I'm not saying that you have to get. Uh, illegal, and I'm not. But I do recognize and say that if you're going to fight this, you got to pull out all the stops. And yeah, you're going to have to get down and dirty. And yeah, you're going to have to say some things that hurt people's feelings. And yes, you are going to have to cajole. And yes, you are going to have to lobby. And yes, you are going to have to pressure and use everything at your disposal that is legal in order to get the job done. And I'm not sure we had that type of resolve uh, going forward. And Others did and probably got it, let's be honest, in ways that we did not need to stoop to. But I think the time and the resource and the money ultimately that was wasted could have been used for other things when it comes to soccer. Now, it's well documented Seb Blatter wanted the U.S. to get the 2022 World Cup. And Johnny Infantino, a lot of people seem to think, is very much in favor of the U.S. bid this time around. So it's interesting that having the FIFA president in your corner it hasn't always worked out for the U.S. Uh, let me ask you this, though. This is still largely perceived as the U.S. bid, and Mexico yeah. and Canada are sort of an afterthought. Do you think if the matches had been divvied up a little bit differently and it was a really authentic joint bid that maybe people would think twice about, well, we don't want to hurt Mexico and Canada here, whatever issues we might have with the U.S., uh, do you think maybe that, that things would go a little bit differently? I, I, maybe if it was a more equal split, there would be people that are – now thinking about not voting for it, that we would be more liable to, to vote for it. But I think, in, I think in general, right now, everybody understands that when it comes to the infrastructure and the ability for the U.S. to host, and it's not just a World Cup, we all know that this is an expanded World Cup, that the U.S. could do it alone. And this is a concession with a recognition and a respect for the fact that we are, you know, we are not liked by everybody. But I'll tell you this, Mossy, while nothing surprises me when it comes to FIFA and when it comes to World Cups, when that card is pulled out of the envelope right before the World Cup starts this summer, which, by the way, we will be covering from start to finish, it would still not only devastate me, but still surprise me if it does not say United States, Canada, and Mexico for a number of reasons, including the support that Johnny Infantino has, and, and more importantly, just out of the recognition that many of these members... They want money, and this is going to generate, and we've talked about this before, more money than they have ever had before. But when it comes to uh, this particular moment and the fact that President Trump has been used, I know for a fact that those involved in organizing this bid have been in constant contact and have had meetings with the White House, as they should, because they have to get prepared. As we know, there are things that are stipulations when it comes to FIFA for hosting a World Cup, as there are stipulations and requirements when it comes to hosting Olympics or any type of big uh, ceremony like this. The visa, tra visa and the travel and the, the tax concessions, all the different things that are involved, you, you have to make sure that that is in order. And so they are going about what, what should be done is planning for this to happen. And, it, and as I said before, I think it'll really surprise me if the U.S., Canada, and Mexico joint bid does not get picked. Morocco, with all due respect to Morocco, it is a completely different thing. There are going to be plenty of people that vote for Morocco, and they will vote 
either because Morocco has promised them something or they will vote just out of principle and just not voting for the United States. And this is where, to your point, the association with President Trump, even though he's not going to even be involved if the U.S. Were, uh, and Mexico and Canada were to get it, can have can be a hindrance going forward because he comes with plenty of baggage, as we know, and the things that he says, um, and even in the way that he said this, I guarantee the Joint Bid Committee said, well, we want your support and we appreciate your support. We maybe we would have finessed the way it was worded, and, and uh, but that's not what President Trump does. This is what he does. He doesn't pull punches, and the things that he says are music to people's ears and sometimes drive people, not sometimes, a lot of times drive people, drive people nuts. So if the joint bid had actually scripted this, this tweet, I doubt that they would have phrased it the way that he and his people did. But you know what? If, if you want his support, it comes with that type of baggage. And I think they looked at it and said, this is worth whatever risk or whatever hindrance you or others may see with that association with the president. Now, you said you'd be devastated um, if it is Morocco on June 13th. How big a hit does U.S. soccer take on the heels of the U.S. not qualifying for the World Cup, this very controversial presidential election? And then if this goes the wrong way, it, does Sunil Gulati get blamed? Carlos Cordero? How, how does that play out? Sunil Gulati doesn't get blamed for any of it. No, because Sunil Gulati is out. Carlos Cordero is in. This is on his watch. Uh, certainly he has had time. And certainly he is coming in with fortified with more than, when certainly more than Morocco has. So it's going to be up to him and the three nations to explain why this didn't get done and to give us a reason why it didn't get done. But it's going to, it, it will be, it will be, I would say if that doesn't happen, given what's happened with the failure of the U.S. men's team to make the World Cup, it will be the lowest point in U.S. soccer history. And <laughs> so I guess there's only one way to go uh, but up. But I, I, I am optimistic. Uh, last question. Where were you when you found out the U.S. would be hosting the 1994 World Cup? And did you realize then that that was going to be this life-altering event in your life? I will tell you this. I, didn't, I, was, I can't tell you where I was because I don't remember the announcement. I played in the 1994 World Cup. I went to the 1990 World Cup as a fan, painted my face, traveled around and drank beer and, and raised hell with a bunch of uh, high school and uh, high school buddies. Saw Eric Winalda get sent off. Uh, I saw Eric yeah. Winalda get sent off. So I, I saw I saw all of all of that over over in Italy, but I had no idea at the time that it was announced that the United States was going to host the World Cup. And so I certainly obviously I didn't even have an inclination that that we were going to host it, let alone that I was going to be a part of it. So it just it just shows you how far we've come, uh, that a whole generation is going to tune in uh, in a matter of weeks to not just the World Cup this summer, but right before the World Cup starts, an announcement that is going to potentially change the landscape of soccer in the United States uh, in 2026 to be able to host a men's World Cup for the first time since 1994. Uh, and I, I, I'm living proof of what it can do to an individual, but I also recognize what it can do to a culture and to multiple generations. And it would, yeah, it, I would be devastated because we would not get that incredible injection and that life-changing type of power that comes with hosting a Men's World Cup. All right, well, the vote will be on June 13th. We will be in Russia to cover that, and uh, hopefully that card is pulled out of the envelope saying U.S., Mexico, and Canada. All right, moving on. 
Mossy Makes the Case. Yes, it's time for Mossy Makes the Case. My friend David Mossy, what do you have to tell the people this week? Lexi, my case this week is that we are headed for a potentially fascinating Ballon d'Or race, which is going to dredge up the age-old debate of, in a World Cup year, should the World Cup dictate this award? Andres Iniesta announced this past Friday that he is leaving Barcelona at the end of the season to go to China. And there have been loads of articles written about his career, all of them lamenting the fact that he never won the Ballon d'Or. Now, we are living in the age of Messi and Ronaldo. They've combined to win the last 10, five apiece, and it's tough to make a case for anyone else unless you're bullish on the fact that in a World Cup year, the World Cup should trump everything else. And then you do have a case in 2010. Spain won the World Cup playing this revolutionary tiki-taka football with Iniesta at the heart of it, and he scored the extra-time winner in the final against the Netherlands. Messi at that World Cup, zero goals in five games. Argentina lost 4-0 to Germany in the quarterfinals, and yet Messi still won the Ballon d'Or. And that seemed to set a precedent because in 2014, Germany won the World Cup, Ronaldo had a terrible tournament, Portugal got knocked out in the group stage, and he still won the Ballon d'Or. So I think where we've landed on this is if you're dominant enough at club level and a team wins a World Cup that doesn't have a flashy superstar, you can still win the award. So fast forward to 2018, it looks like we're headed for a Liverpool-Round Madrid Champions League final. The conventional wisdom is whoever wins that game, then Mo Salah or Ronaldo becomes the front runner for the Ballon d'Or heading into the World Cup. And if a Germany or Spain win it where it's more of a collective, different guys shining each game, you default back to the Champions League and you give it to Ronaldo or Salah. But what if Argentina win the World Cup? Messi has a spectacular tournament. What if Brazil wins the World Cup? Neymar has a spectacular tournament. Then do you have to give it to that guy? Alexi Lalas, what say you about all this? First, I have a question. Explain to me and the folks out there what the Ballon d'Or is, first off. It is the, the big player of the year. Well, there's actually a separate one by FIFA, but uh, they've never been able to replace the Ballon d'Or in terms of prestige. That's still perceived as like the big award to win at the end of each calendar year, uh, the big player of the year award. Well, what's and the it's, criteria? It's, uh, it's voted on by journalists around Europe. It's measuring your performance over the, the previous 12 months for club and country. It's uh, sponsored by uh, France Football, the publication. Has anybody that's not played in Europe ever won it? No, no. And it's actually only been open to non-European players since 1995. It used to be strictly a European Player of the Year award. Now it's open to everybody. So obviously Messi and tons of South Americans have won it in the last 20 plus years. So, Well, look, uh, I I get what you're saying. If Messi and Argentina win the World Cup this summer, I I love Mo Salah. And we're going to talk more about Mosala going forward regardless. And certainly in our coverage this week over on Fox of, the Ch- of Champions League, we will be talking a lot about him. Uh, I get the feeling that people will be yelling at me. Uh, that's just a little teaser of what's to come. But if Messi wins a World Cup with Argentina, yeah, he's, he will win Ballon d'Or. Okay? And yes, there's some sentiment behind that and, and a recognition that while there's others that may have can make an argument, uh, may have done more. Yeah. I mean, this is a guy that's, that's all we've talked about is, well, in order to really be the greatest player of all time, he's got to lift the, uh, the World Cup, and he's in, constantly in the shadow of Diego Maradona, who, by the way, uh, won the World Cup. So, yeah, I think if that were to happen, 100%. Now, you're, you're in Iniesta argument over here. Are you arguing that he should have won Ballon d'Or? Well, the interesting thing is, I actually think Xavi had a better case that year. I thought he had a better overall year than Iniesta, but then Iniesta scored in the World Cup final, and I think Xavi and Iniesta actually ended up splitting the vote, and then Messi won it. I think if, if everybody had thrown their weight behind one or 
two of those, one guy or the other, then perhaps they would have won it. The other guy you could have made a case for that year was Wesley Snyder because Inter won the treble in 2010, and then the Netherlands got to the World Cup final. He scored five goals. He was great. Uh, but, yeah, there, there is this debate about can you go too far down the World Cup path because in 2002, Ronaldo won. Uh, he did nothing relevant at club level that year. He was injured most of the time, but then he shows up at the World Cup, scores eight goals, two in the final against Germany, and he wins it. And some people had a problem with that. And also in 2006, they gave it to Fabio Cannavaro, who they felt like they had to give it to an Italy player, but it really didn't have that great of a year otherwise. And it was nice to see a defender win it. He's almost like the Charles Woodson of the Ballon d'Or. But some people had an issue with that. So do you think you can go too far down the World Cup path? It's still, a, a, in theory, supposed to measure your performance over the whole year for right. club and country. So it's an interesting debate. It, it is. And it's, it's ripe for debate because there are no right answers. And when you talk about players internationally you can be screwed if you're playing for a team internationally that's not, I mean, Messi's playing for Argentina, okay? Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo's playing for Portugal. Neymar's playing for Brazil. So they have the advantage. Mo Salah is playing for Egypt, okay? If he were to do something internationally with Egypt, for me, that's even more impressive than Messi doing something uh, with Argentina. We expect Argentina, with or without Messi, still to be Argentina with that pedigree that they have. But no matter what, it, it's never going to be fair because then what are people going to say? Well, it's only goal scorers. And what about this incredible Manuel Neuer? Or, or why, why shouldn't the goalkeeper be, be considered like that? Look, you can, you can value what an Iniesta does or a Xavi does and recognize that without that, others, let's say Messi, can't do what they do. But that doesn't mean that they are as valuable as Messi if you it take it taken alone. And yes, Messi is great because he can do the individual thing. And yes, Messi is great because he has been supported by an incredible supporting ca cast when it comes to club, uh, when it comes to club and country. So I, I, I would not say that Iniesta nor Xavi should have been Ballon d'Or uh, winners in, in the past. And that doesn't mean that they're not b beautiful players and wonderful players and will go down as great players in history. Now, as far as this year, let me say this. The soccer world has turned on Neymar. Uh, look no further than you did your little top five list uh, last week online. And if you look at the comments, I know you thought you were going to rile people up by putting Neymar at number four, and you did, but it was the other way. Like, why is this bum even in the top five? Uh, and so, listen, if Brazil wins the World Cup and Neymar has a great tournament, I think he probably wins the Ballon d'Or, but it's not a lock because I think people are itching to find a reason to not give it to him. But I agree with you. With Messi, Argentina, there's no debate. I'm sorry. Like, he has more pressure on him going into this tournament than any player I can ever remember at a World Cup. I think there still is this notion. People look at that roster. They see some big names. They think he has a good team around him. I don't think this is a good Argentina team. For them to win it, he's going to have to go Maradona 86 on us. And if he does and they win it, you have to give him the Ballon d'Or with all respect to Salah and Ronaldo and what they're doing at club in level. In particular because one of the reasons why he has come under, for, uh, come under criticism is that people have argued in the past that he has a better supporting cast than Maradona did when, when Maradona won it. So if you're saying that this current crop of Argentina that surround him is weaker and he does, I mean, 
he does exactly what Maradona does in the perception that he is carrying this team, more, much more so in the past. I, I, I completely agree. Then he has to be considered. Is there any guy I'm leaving out that if Belgium win the World Cup and De Bruyne has a good tournament, could you make a case for him? If France win the World Cup and a Griezmann or Mbappe has a great tournament, I mean, where do you cut it off? As if Is it just Ronaldo, Messi, Salah, and Neymar? Are those the only realistic candidates you could see winning it this year? Yeah, those are the only candidates yeah. that I can see winning this award. But when I list my top five, and by the way, uh, another teaser, we will be listing our top five this week on our Champions League coverage. And I'm telling you right now uh, that your friend uh, Neymar is, is taking a hit. He's, he's going to take a hit. But not to, to one you can predict, but one you can't predict. So that's my little <laughs> teaser. So, but, but, but the one you can't predict, he's not going to win. I, I, he's not going to win uh, the Ballon d'Or. But in my top five, he is above Neymar. And his name is not Mossad. And let me end on a little bit of a rant here. Uh, Sergio Ramos, in speaking about Iniesta, said, if only he was named Andresinho, he would have won the Ballon d'Or. And there's long been this notion that Brazilians get sort of, a, there's a bias in favor of Brazilians. Four Brazilians have won the Ballon d'Or. Ronaldo won it twice. Rivaldo, Ronaldinho, and Kaká. And none of those years was it even debatable, other than that Ronaldo 2002, where that gets into a larger debate about World Cup, where he didn't play much at club level, but he, he was a star of the World Cup. So I suppose that year, but none of the others were even debatable. So I, I take great exception to that. And next time I see Sergio Ramos, we might have some words over it because I didn't appreciate that comment. Oh, all right, Sergio. You have been called out. I'm sure he's shaking in his shoes. All right. That has been our Mossy Makes the Case. Uh, if you disagree or agree or just want to scream and yell at him, please let us know uh, online, either on Twitter or on Facebook, or you know, just if you see him in the street, scream and yell at him. He, he likes that too, uh, with, uh, with the things that he said, either in his Mossy Makes the Case segment or anything that he says on this podcast. Go to his house, you know, just knock on the door and say, Mossy, I can't even believe that you were talking about this, and he will have a discussion. He probably won't invite you in, because he doesn't do that, but he will at least have a, a discussion on the front porch. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. Yes, it is time for Ask Alexi, the hashtag Ask Alexi that we use on social media. You can ask us questions. And then, if you're lucky, someday David Mossy will be reading your question on the State of the Union podcast as he is about to do. All right, what do the people want to know, David? First up, at E.T. Zakruski. Okay. I have no connection to Mexico, yet see many Americans rooting for them in the World Cup. As a relative newcomer to soccer, how culturally weird is it to root for a neighboring nation? It is culturally weird. Yes, you are correct. Now, the unique aspects of the American culture make it much less so. So, so for example, we all know that you are a Brazilian through and through in terms of who you root for. If I were to ask you to root in any way for Argentina, that would be a no-go, right? Correct. Uh, if you were to ask a German to root for the Netherlands... No go, right? Uh, England, Germany, England, Ireland, uh, take your pick. I'm assuming no go. Give me some other ones. Spain, Portugal, no go, I would think. Uh, anything else big out there where it's just a complete separation? Yeah, oh, there are many. I mean, you say England, Scotland? Or England, Scotland, there you go. England, Scotland. So, yes, traditionally that is not done. However, as I said, the United States, with its incredible diversity, uh, that makes us the greatest country in the world, I think is, it, it's, it's not allowable, that's not the best word, but I'm, I'm going to use allowable 
And so, and certainly when it comes to the affiliation uh, and the connection between the United States and Mexico in our culture, whether it comes to language or sport or business uh, or just our proximity to the country and you know the constant connections that we have, I, I think it's permissible. And so this is what I hear people screaming at their radios right now saying, or they're just screaming out loud as they hear this on the headset. They're saying, no, that's, that's not permissible. If you are a U.S. men's national team fan, there is no way in hell that you could possibly support a team like El Tri uh, in Mexico. Uh, I think we are more evolved than that. And by supporting El Tri, in particular in this moment when... I don't need to remind you, there is no men's national team playing in the World Cup this summer. By doing it, it does in no way diminish your support or your love for the U.S. men's national team, the U.S. national team, women, men's, doesn't really matter, uh, or the country by supporting a team like Mexico. By the same token, I can still understand if you say, nope, I'm not going to do it, I, I don't uh, I don't want any part of it, and you use it as this badge of honor to somehow gauge how uh, how fervent you are as an American fan. So I just think that it's if you need my permission, I give you full permission to root for anybody that you want, including our biggest rival, which is and certainly has been uh, Mexico, to Zakruski out there. So go for it. Do it. And if anybody gives you any type of grief, have them come talk to me. Not in person, but, you know, they can send me a message. Don't, don't stop me on the street. All right, what else? At Esplin Janelle 6, what are the chances that Christian Pulisic will still be at BVB this summer for the ICC? Uh, obviously, this person's looking to buy tickets for Dortmund games this summer. Is worried that Pulisic might not be on the team anymore. I think that right now it's... Hmm. I think because he's not in the World Cup, I, I think it hurts that, uh, what's it called? That shop fervor. window. Yeah, it's that shop window, but it's also this, this nuttiness that happens during a World Cup where players are valued at ridiculous rates and they score a couple goals. Uh, the Hamas effect, right? Right. And that's not to say that Christian Pulisic hasn't been valued and isn't a, a recognized talent worldwide. But I think that what will happen is the talk will be so consumed with those impacted and affected by the World Cup that he might, he might not be on everybody's lips. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, because I think there's a, a real school of thought that says he could benefit from having another year in this type of situation where he is certainly developing and, and developing at a rapid rate. He's definitely comfortable. And he's still not at the level yet that I think a lot of people believe that he can achieve. And going someplace else with added pressure, I think a lot of people feel one more year of growth in this type of cocoon, if you will, that is Dortmund, would benefit him. So that's a long way of saying I have no idea if he's going to evolve this summer. Look, just from a business standpoint, if he's part of the team, they're going to bring him, <laughs> as they should. And I think he will enjoy a tour of the United States playing in his home country uh, the conquering type of hero and the the incredible talent, uh, the incredible talent that he is, that will look a little different if he is sold and not there. People will still go. It's still Dortmund, but a Pulisic-less Dortmund is less interesting to an American audience, obviously, than 
one that has the young man. Well, unlike Rob Stone, I am excited for the ICC. Rob's been sending some snarky <laughs> tweets uh, poo-pooing that competition. But in fact, uh, Liverpool played Man United at the Big House in Ann Arbor, and Keith Costman and I have had some preliminary talks about attending that game together. But let me just say on Dortmund, uh, I was really worried about Dortmund a couple months ago, but it looks like they're going to finish in the top four. Royce just signed a new contract recently. He's saying all the right things about, I want to stay here. Batshuayi did better than I expected. Presumably, they're going to sign him permanently. So all of a sudden, it's not that depressing of a place for him to spend another season at, like I thought it it was maybe trending towards being. So yeah, if I'm Pulisic, I think I'd probably stick it out another season. We'll see who they bring in as a coach. I don't think Peter Stoger is there for the long term. So they're going to be hiring a new coach this summer, and we'll see who that is and how Pulisic jives with him. So you know, And how important he is. I mean, do they need him to be successful? I, w- I would argue that he is a vital component of that team, and that team is lessened by his absence. Absolutely. Now, I don't want to belabor this point, but I do think Jadon Sancho in their eyes is sort of the jewel now. Uh, okay. So, uh, But Pulisic's still very, very important as well, still very highly regarded there for sure. Uh, and we'll end on this. Our producer, Francis Silva, probably picked this question. At Kevin GDM 10 can you consider Barcelona's season a failure since they crashed out of the Champions League? So the context here is this past weekend, they just clinched the La Liga title with four rounds to spare. They also won the Copa del Rey recently. They crushed Sevilla in the final. So a league and cup double, and yet out in the quarterfinals of the Champions League to Roma in shocking fashion. We've talked about how in this day and age of the Super Club, it's, it's more about the Champions League than the domestic stuff. So uh, how would you assess this Barcelona season? Why should I care that Barcelona won the title this year? Well, I mean, it, it's we know there's two teams, two and a half teams, okay? And w- like you mentioned, when it comes to Super Clubs, and Barcelona undoubtedly is a Super Club, it's about Champions League. And they bombed out spectacularly in Champions League. So, yes, it is a failure. I don't care that they're, they're winning La Liga. It means absolutely nothing to me. Hey, you want to you wanna spread the wealth and you want to have all La Liga teams uh, share in the money when it comes to the TV and the marketing rights? Hey, now we're talking. Now, now maybe you got something, something happening here. But this two-horse race, and I know Real Madrid has completely given up, but don't think for a second that if Real Madrid goes and wins Champions League, and by the way, wins three in a row, that that isn't going to overshadow the celebration of Barcelona winning La Liga. I don't think Barcelona cares about it. They won't say it. They'll, they'll celebrate it because they have to try to do something to salvage this year. And they'll say, hey, we won La Liga. And Real Madrid and uh, Zinedine Zidane will be sitting over there smoking a cigarette and drinking a coffee saying, yeah, that's all fine and well. Watch what we do. You know, hold my beer. <laughs> a few things on this. Uh, yeah, it was interesting reading the Barcelona papers last night. They were talking about this and really trying to push back against this notion that this season has been a disappointment. But they fully acknowledge that how this season will be perceived largely rests on what Real Madrid does in the Champions League, which is a weird position to be in. Where <laughs> It's not weird. It's completely logical when you only have two teams. And I know all the La Liga folks will be screaming, yeah, there's more than two teams. And but all so, but if, if, if Real Madrid get knocked out this week by Bayern, do you think then, then Barcelona it. feels good then about their season? it completely changes it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, the argument that they were trying to make is that if you flash back to August, 
uh, right after Neymar left, Barcelona got crushed by Real Madrid in the Spanish Super Cup. And there was like legitimate doom and gloom and people thinking they, they were going to have this very bad season. So to go from that to where they are now, a little bit of perspective, you know, they're, they're trying to... And, and bear in mind, uh, they're still unbeaten in La Liga, which hasn't been done in 86 years. There's four rounds left. They face Real Madrid next weekend. So if they beat Real Madrid and finish the league unbeaten, does that add some gloss to it? Or, or no, it's still everything at the mercy of what Real Madrid does in the Champions League. Okay, so they, they won La Liga this weekend, right? With what, four games to go? Yep, like yep. Yeah, four games to go. That news, now we live in a global society here, the news instantaneously goes out, right? Real Madrid wins Champions League for the third time in a row, and then that news is disseminated out to the world. Who is more impacted and affected? Or which news has more, it spans the world more? Uh, Real Madrid. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's a long setup for the for, the, yeah, for you to finally come uh, in there. But yeah, that's that's exactly it because that's what the world ultimately cares about. And if you are a global brand, you are going to be judged by what the world ultimately cares about. The world does not care that Barcelona won La Liga. All right, two more things on this. I know this conversation is running a bit long, but I should have mentioned this during the Ballon d'Or chat, but Messi with a hat-trick uh, over the weekend. But they, were, they were in big trouble against Deportivo in that game, and Messi came to the rescue again. And I think it's been lost here because of what happened against Roma. He is, he's had a spectacular season. He's played as well as I've ever seen him play. And I actually think the Roma game elevates him in a way because it showed you when he doesn't turn up like what that team looks like. You know, Ronaldo didn't turn up last week, and they still beat Bayern. The degree to which they've relied on him this season has been just incredible and for them to be unbeaten right now in La Liga and, and winning a League and Cup double it's a testament to him above anything else he's been spectacular and then one last thing so Coutinho uh, scored a beautiful goal over the weekend he's had what I would call not spectacular but a very solid start to his Barcelona career he's won two trophies already the numbers are good the fans and media like him he's, he's fit in well there he scored some beautiful goals but Liverpool are doing what they're doing Klopp, it looks like, is building something really special. Where's his head at right now? Do you think he totally regrets the move, or he's okay with it, or somewhere in the middle, he's conflicted? Where's his head at right now? I don't think he's conflicted at all. He is playing for one of the great teams alongside some of the greatest players ever to play the game. Uh, This time next year, we know that Barcelona is still going to be in the mix. Do we know that Liverpool is going to be in the mix? Is this an anomaly, uh, this, this aberration? It's very possible given their track record, and I don't care what anybody says, all you Liverpool fans, nobody expected this to happen. This is all, this is all wonderful. And while they expected Liverpool to improve and had hopes that they would do well, this is, this is, this is stars. This is, this is an incredible moment. So I don't think he cares at all. He's making plenty of money. He's where he wants to be. I don't think any part of him says, oh, I really wish, uh, wish I was there. And, and if any part of him does, he just needs to turn around, look at who's around him, and understand that he's going to get plenty of time to be in these moments. And you can't overestimate the degree to which every Brazilian dreams of playing for Barcelona and Real Madrid. To them, that's the pinnacle. So with all due respect to Liverpool, uh, that is it for this week. All right, that is it for our Ask Alexi segment. As always, uh, you can get to us with the hashtag Ask Alexi on Twitter and Facebook and all the different social media platforms that we have out there. Use that hashtag. And as I said, David might one day be reading your question right here on the State of the Union podcast. All right, moving on. World Cup Update. 
All right, it is time for the World Cup date. We are six weeks away from the World Cup. I can't believe it. All right, so we're going to start this where we're going to talk about the groups and the teams in the groups. We're going to take the first three groups this week and discuss group A, B, and C. And we will be doing this leading up to the World Cup. We're not going to go into the weeds or anything like that. Just look at the teams, look at the matchups, look at a couple of different stories and a couple of different players here. All right, uh, David Mossy, Group A featuring Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Uruguay. What jumps out at you first? Well, as you know, uh, I'm very high on Uruguay. We've talked about this on this podcast. So I think they they are the class of that group and actually are a team that can go far in this World Cup. I like this blend of youth and experience they have going with Suarez, Cavani, Godin, yes, but also... Uh, Maxi Gomez, Federico Valverde, Lucas Torreira, Rodrigo Bentancur, guys like that. So very high on Uruguay. Saudi Arabia, I don't know much about. They do have this striker, Mohamed El Salawi, who scored 16 goals in qualifying, actually trained with Manchester United last month, I believe. But I, without knowing, I'd assume they're going to finish fourth. To me, it's, it's a battle for second between Russia and Egypt. And I slightly lean Russia. I think the home field advantage. And I do think Mohamed Salah is not going to have a lot left in the tank after this season. Uh, to be able to carry Egypt through. So I, I lean towards Russia grabbing the other spot out of that group. But it, speaking of Russia, this is not a great team, as we know, and I think they would be the first to admit it. The host nation in that first game against Saudi Arabia, they got to get three points. Yep. And you talked about the pressure that Messi's under. and How about the pressure of this Russia team? Because for them, they just got to get out of the group. And they get out of the group, then everything else is is gravy. But not to get out of the group in a World Cup that they are hosting. And this isn't just some small little team. Uh, and, and I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that can go into depth as to why Russia has not been better over the years. But as we said, you know, this is a team that is not great, but they are going to be under immense pressure. Now we're going to see whether this moment is too big for them or somehow they are buoyed by, not somehow, by, by just an incredible amount of of passion and energy behind them, and that suddenly catapults them into a team that we haven't seen. But that's really what's going to happen. A different Russia team is going to have to show up than the one that we have, uh, uh, that we have seen, certainly leading up to this World Cup and certainly in the past uh, tournaments that they played. I do like Golovin. I uh, scored a nice free kick goal yep. for CSK against Arsenal, so he's a player to watch. A couple of interesting coaching notes in this group. Juan Antonio Pizzi, who failed to qualify for the World Cup with Chile, uh, he'll be going to Russia. Chile won't. Uh, he is now the Saudi Arabia manager. And also, Egypt are coached by this Argentine Hector Cooper, who's got great pedigree. He took Valencia to the Champions League final. Famously feuded with Ronaldo at Inter Milan in 2002. Big reason why Ronaldo left for Real Madrid. So keep an eye on that. Uh, do you want to move on to Group B? Group B, Portugal, Spain, Morocco, and Iran. And for those uh, that are watching on, uh, on television uh, this summer, you can't get any bigger or better than a Portugal-Spain matchup right off the bat. That comes the second day, if I'm not mistaken, of the uh, World Cup. I cannot wait to see that for for the talent that's on the field, for uh, for the history, and the fact that we're coming out with a bang of a game with Portugal and Spain. Yeah, Spain is my pick to win this World Cup. Uh, they got to sort out who's going to start up front. Uh, they've got two uh, Brazilian-born players as options, Diego Costa and Rodrigo. You've also got Morata. Uh, Sid Lowe is making a big case for Iago Aspas. But everywhere else, my God, that team is loaded from the midfield, back line, all the way to goalkeeper with Thank De Gea. you. Thank you. Why is he always a, a, an no, afterthought with you? Not with David me. David De Gea. Hint, 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 hint. Maybe talked about this week. I'm just saying. <laughs> what a player. What a phenomenal goalkeeper to have. And as you mentioned, just uh, there's just stars. And 
this dip that Spain had, they have certainly come out of it and they have announced their, let's say, reemergence with authority so that you're not saying anything that a lot of people aren't saying, that this is a Spain that is not to be trifled with and they are coming in all guns blazing. Portugal, you know, they, they won the Euros, but they got dinged for not playing attractive football in that tournament, being very negative. This team has the potential to be more fun. Uh, some players have emerged since then. Andres Silva, who didn't have a good season for Milan, but he'll start up front. He's got a good record. Uh, international level, Bernardo Silva, Manchester City, Gonzalo Guedes, a wonderful player, has had an excellent season with Valencia. So Bernardo does have some help up there. It's not going to be all about him having to carry everything. Uh, so Portugal could be an interesting team to watch. S- uh, certainly, you'd you'd pick Spain and Portugal to advance from this group, right? It'd be a huge shock if. Yeah, but what do you think? Yeah, yeah, Spain and Portugal advance, and then Morocco and Iran. Look, it, it, they'd have to do something special to have any. Morocco could be a little frisky. They have some guys. Medi Benate was obviously yep. famously fouled. Lucas Vasquez recently uh, that crazy Buffon incident. Um, Amin Harit, who we've watched with Schalke this season, uh, Buffal, the Southampton player, Hakim Ziak, this, this midfielder for Ajax, who I love. We watched him a lot in the Europa League last season. El Hamadi, Yunus Behanda. So uh, they, they've they've got some pedigree. They've got a ton of guys that play in Europe. So they're not going to be like totally over overawed but still it'd be a huge stretch the only thing i would say about iran is they're coached by a portuguese guy carlos carosh who who will be facing sure. his native country and they have this striker as moon who's who's nicknamed the, uh, the iranian messi yeah. so uh <laughs> everybody has their own messi right <laughs> who's who's the american messi do we have one we don't have one we're the only ones that don't have one yet we have to anoint somebody uh okay that's uh that's group b uh just uh, before we leave that uh score prediction a result prediction, at least, uh, between that first game, Portugal and Spain. 3-0 uh, no Spain. They, Ooh, make a they statement. come out and they spank them. They make a statement. Wow. Wow. Keep in mind, when Spain won the World Cup back in 2010, they lost their first game. Of to the Switzerland, World Cup. yeah. Yeah, yeah all, right. all right. So, Group ABC. Now, we are into Group C. Ooh, Group C. Very interesting. France, Australia, Peru, and Denmark. Ho, ho, ho. All right, so France, we all know, is either winning the World Cup or bombing out spectacularly. There is no in-between with them. I know you've talked about, as, as everybody uh, has, about Mbappe, and you think that this is possibly a coming-out party. Pele Not that nobody knows him, but from an international <laughs> perspective, uh, you've talked about how important he is, and Griezmann, and uh, Loris, and, and Kante, and all the, the incredible talent that France has, and has always had, but putting it together and having infighting either on or off the field not just completely derail their World Cup at times has been problematic. Oh, absolutely. But but still, they're the class of this group. Yeah. Uh, I think it's pretty wide open for second, though. Australia, we got to look at at the Confederations Cup. We know who the guys are. Tim Cahill still kicking around at 38, and Matthew Leckie, Aaron Moy, uh, uh Rogic, so um, they've got a pretty and a good coach, Bert van Marwijk, who led the Dutch to the 2010 World Cup final. Peru are a very interesting team. Uh, they're unbeaten in 12. They haven't lost since late 2016. They're still waiting on this Paulo Guerrero situation to see if he's going to be eligible and be able to play. But in the meantime, without him, they won two friendlies against Iceland and Croatia in March. Jefferson Farfan rejuvenated, starting up front. They've got two really good players I like in the midfield, Renato Tapia and Edison Flores, a really good coach in Gareca. So they're something of a little bit of a sleeper here to get out of that group, I think. And so, Ro- and Rob Stone has M- pegged this M- as his group of death, by the M- way. Rob Stone said what? Yeah, yeah, he's very high on this group. Well, high on the group is one thing. This is not a group of death. Stop it. Stop. Rob Stone you. said that? I, I believe he said that during our draw coverage. Oh, I, I'm calling him after the show. That's <laughs> ridiculous. And uh, so, uh, plenty of MLS influence, too, with... Uh, well, Yoshi Rotun possibly, and uh, Jordi Reyna, and these types of uh, these types of players. But I, I, I was listening to our colleague uh, Lothar Mateus, 
uh, do an interview, and he seems to think that Peru uh, has possibly peaked. This is this is it for them. They're just they're just happy to be there. You buy that or no? What does Lothar Mateus know about World Cups? <laughs> um, no, I think they'll play well. Like I, said, I like the coach a lot, Gareca, but I actually like Denmark to be the other team to get out of this group. I think Christian Eriksen is one of those sort of sleeper, could be one of the, like the James of, of this World Cup. I like him a lot, and uh, so and I Schmeichel, like their team. So so yeah, uh, Simon Kier anchoring that back line. Yeah, he is he is quality man. We'll see if Christensen, the Chelsea kid, uh, Alex Dowd favorite, uh, maybe can find his way into that back line. But, yeah, it's Ericsson pulling the strings. Uh, we'll see if Nicholas Bettner is still the guy leading the line up there, which is pretty amazing. All right, so you're saying France comes out first and Denmark comes out second. Correct. That's what you're doing. I am, go- I am going s- to say that France does come out first, and then I'm going to go against my friend uh, Lothar Mateus and say Peru comes out second. Interesting. Bam! There so, we go. Wait, did you did you say your group A? So I had Uruguay, sorry, yeah. uh, Uruguay and Russia and yeah, I didn't say, I didn't say it. So back to group A. So you have Uruguay first, Russia second in right. group A. I have Uruguay first, Egypt second. Right. No, 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 no. I have Egypt first, Uruguay second. Excuse me, I'm gonna flip those two. And and Egypt, for my money, their best player, Mohamed Salah. <laughs> That's why we have you here, my yeah. friend, for that in-depth analysis. Soccer savant. <laughs> All right, uh, and then I, uh, and then uh, for Group B, you have who coming out, and in what order? Uh, I have Spain and Portugal. Spain and then Portugal. I too have Spain, and then Portugal. That's that's what I have too. Now keep in mind that we will continue to do these things, and uh, I will change that up constantly as we head up to the World Cup. So, um, one of the tricks of the trade is to get as many different predictions out there as possible. And then eventually you're right on one of them. I look so. forward to uh, when we get to Group E because, given your comments about Neymar recently, I guess Brazil are going to finish last in that group, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, and uh, Costa Rica spanks them seven to one. All right. Well, that has been our our cup date. As we said, we're just touching the surface. We will go into much more detail as we get closer and certainly during our coverage this summer of the World Cup. But it is upon us six weeks away, World Cup in Russia, and that has been our World Cup date. Moving on, we're getting to the end. The back three. All right, we're coming down the back stretch here. The back three is upon us. Uh, Mossy, what do we have for our back three today? First up, Zlatan. Something of a rant. Is the honeymoon over? Is he already frustrated, very unhappy with the Galaxy's play? Uh, I was at the Galaxy New York Red Bull game this weekend at the StubHub Center uh, Saturday night special in which the... Uh, in which New York Red Bulls ended up winning 3-2. to two. It was not a good performance from the Los Angeles Galaxy. They looked disjointed. They looked like that proverbial team that has talent all over the field, but just has yet figured out a way to actually play. And this is, this is nothing new. When you have Zlatan, who wants to play in the middle, but also likes to drop, you had brought in Ola Kamara to actually play that position. This weekend, he was put out wide, which is not where he's most comfortable. Didn't he wasn't horrible out there, but Ziggy Schmidt has some questions to answer, and they are not questions that he didn't anticipate with the arrival of Zlatan. Uh, I didn't see it necessarily as anything bad in in terms of the comments from from Zlatan. Uh, he 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 understands that this is a work in progress, but I was reminded while watching this game once again that for the first time maybe in what. 20 years, Zlatan is playing for a team that is not the best and that is not far away the best. This is, he's playing for a team that doesn't have all the best players. He's playing for a team that is equal or 
in some cases, uh, and unfortunately for the LA Galaxy, in many cases now, inferior to opposition. And that is a whole nother experience for a player who has played for predominantly just the best teams in that league. And sometimes far and away the best teams in that league. And that is, a, that is an adjustment that I think is very, very difficult for him. So the, not just the opportunities that he has been able to have playing on these teams in the past, but the consistency of opportunities. That's not going to happen in Major League Soccer, and it's certainly not going to happen playing on the Los Angeles Galaxy at this point. Now, just a little addition to this. I know there was a lot of complaint this, uh, complaints this weekend about VAR, the video review uh, with the video uh, assistant referee. What I think people need to do is recognize that while the complaints can happen, I think the, the complaint is what is clear and obvious. And that's where I think some of the problems are happening, is what is clear and obvious and because we know that the only time that you're allowed to actually review a call is when there was a clear and obvious error. And that is getting to be very, very subjective as to what is clear and obvious going, going forward. Because when I look at the calls this weekend that people are complaining about, none of them are really wrong. You can make an argument. Now, where the argument is, is what is clear and obvious when it comes to the decision process. And that's something that pro and ultimately Major League Soccer, which is using it, are going to have to define and answer better because I think that's where a lot of the confusion and I think a lot of the irritation and the consternation is coming from. All right, what else? Next up, uh, the Champions League semifinals conclude this week. Uh, we're taping this on a Monday. Uh, Tuesday, it's Real Madrid hosting Bayern. Uh, Real with a 2-1 aggregate lead. And then Wednesday, it'll be Roma hosting Liverpool. Liverpool with a 5-2 aggregate advantage. So we'll take them in order. Uh, last season, quarterfinals, Real won 2-1 in Munich. And then Bayern came back and won by that same score after 90 minutes. It went to extra time. Real Madrid ended up advancing in controversial fashion. So that's been the big rallying cry for Bayern. We, we, we sort of pulled this off last season, um, and they felt like the first leg, uh, they were the better team. They're just unlucky, missed a lot of chances. The injuries are piling up. Both Robin and Boateng out. Vidal. Isco. Isco's out, too. Isco, yeah, Isco and Carvajal for Real Madrid. Yep. And then for Bayern, it's, it's Neuer, Boateng, Vidal, Robin, and Kingsley Coman all unavailable, uh, which is a lot. Uh, so how do you see this one? I see if you're going to take out uh, impact players, I, th- I see it falling. So for Real Madrid, Isco's out. And for Bayern Munich, Robin's out. I think that that's worse for Bayern Munich. I think that Iron Robin is a player that can provide you that moment. I thought that Ribery actually had a very good first leg, but I think that this one's ultimately... Uh, over. I think that Real Madrid finds a way as they <laughs> as they seem to, regardless if they're playing well or not, in conventional ways, in non-conventional ways uh, to get through right now. And as I said before, for the first time in a long time, we actually saw Bayern Munich play a real team. And in that moment, while there were moments they played well and certain players at times played well, ultimately they couldn't get that result. And a battle-hardened and tested team like Real Madrid, we saw they just find a way to get a result. Doesn't, al- doesn't always have to be pretty, and oftentimes it isn't pretty, but they say, look, this is ours, and we will find a way to get uh, results. And Zidane, once again, looking like a mastermind in terms of the substitutions, substitutions at halftime, and Asensio and these types of, uh, of changes that he's making, showing that, that not only is he one of the greatest players ever to play the game, but certainly he's becoming one of the greatest managers ever to manage. 
Yeah, there's talk too. I think Nacho's out as well, so Lucas Vasquez might start at right back for them, which is interesting. Uh, I thought Hamas played really well on the heels of you and he enjoy having a spirited debate about him <laughs> in the pregame show, which I quite enjoyed. But uh, shifting gears to the other one, Roma looking to pull off another miracle. Look, I know they beat Barcelona 3-0 in the last round. They beat Chelsea 3-0 at home in the group stage. They, they beat Kievo 4-1 this past weekend at home. So th- there's stuff they can point to, but I, I don't know. I don't see this one. Do you see any chance of another comeback here? It would be... It would be a failure the likes of which we have <laughs> never seen for Liverpool. Now, I'm not putting it past them, <laughs> So, but the advantage that they have is that they have seen this. It will be no surprise to them that this team they're playing is capable of doing it, but I just I have a hard time seeing Liverpool not scoring a goal with this juggernaut that they have and the individual talent that they have. I mean... That, that's going to be the bigger problem for Roma. I think Roma will find ways to score goals. I just don't think that they're going to be able to keep them off on the other side. I agree with you. I know Liverpool have had a couple of nil-nils recently in the Premier League, but they're not even playing anymore there. Uh, in the Champions League, it's actually more far-fetched to me to imagine Liverpool not scoring in a game than it was Barcelona going into that second leg. Uh, so, yeah, I agree with you. And to me, the, the Roma thing, it's like a golfer hitting a hole-in-one in a hole and then thinking that he's not going to do that on every hole. Like, I mean, it, it, that lightning, you know, it, it could happen once. But, uh, let me ask you about Liverpool, because this has been an interesting talking point. I think we're going to have a chat about this uh, on Wednesday. Uh, Roberto Firmino signed a big contract extension yes. this weekend. Till Congratulations to Bobby. He now makes way more than Salah, by the way, so that, that's going to need to be rectified. But so a lot of Liverpool fans pointed this as a sign that uh, players are buying in. Coutinho was the last one. We're done. Everybody's going to stay here. We're going to win the Champions League this season. Nobody's going to want to leave. If, if Liverpool win the Champions League, at Real Madrid still come calling for Salah in the summer with a big offer. How do you think that plays out? I mean, is he going to fully buy in that Liverpool is a final destination for a top player, or there's still going to be this sense of, no, no, Real Madrid is still a step up. If that chance is there, I'm going to be intrigued to go there. So he gets to make more money. He gets to be more popular. He gets to play with better talent. He gets to live in Madrid as opposed to, to Liverpool. Oh, wow. What? Alienating your Liverpool fans there. It's no, a, I mean, th- come on. Lovely city. That all that said, yeah, I just I think it, it's just too big for him to pass up. Now, I, look, I don't, I'm not in his head. I don't know what he's thinking about. And certainly, there's a there's a comfort level, and you know, signing players like well, nobody's coming in for Firmino. I mean, that's just that, that's that's the reality of uh, uh, and the difference between Mo Salah. And if he continues on this summer, I mean, he doesn't have to win the World Cup, but if he just just plays well and has special magic moments, that price tag is going to be incredible. I think it's not only is it going to be difficult for Salah to, to turn down, I think it's going to be difficult ultimately for Liverpool to turn down. And, and last thing before we move on from this, uh, Mo Salah scored twice in the first leg, did not celebrate. Oh, God. Henrik Mkhitaryan scored over the weekend against United, did not celebrate. I sent out a, a tweet uh, that generated a big firestorm. Uh, can you back me up on this? Uh, yeah. Is this whole thing not silly? The it whole... is ridiculous. It is silly not Maybe to celebrate. Maybe if it's a club you have a strong identification with, you were there for many years. Even that you don't buy. But no. I, I at least leave the door open for, okay, Frank Lampard didn't celebrate when he scored for Man City against Chelsea. I could see that. If Iniesta ever ends up scoring against Barcelona in the game. But certainly it's gotten to the point now where you spend five minutes with a club and now you can't celebrate a goal against them? I don't want my former player not <laughs> celebrating. I want him or her to live the passion, the spirit of the game. I actually think that it's a slap in the face when you don't celebrate. It's worse when you don't celebrate because you are somehow betraying what 
this game is about. In the most important moment, scoring a goal, that you, you somehow feel like you are paying tribute or respect by not showing that exuberance and that joy at scoring a goal and, and suppressing that, it's ab- it, it is completely ridiculous. And, and, and I, I don't like it when I see it because I think it's, I think it's contrived, I think it's pandering, and I don't think that it is, tr- it, um, I don't wanna say, well, I don't think that it is genuine as the players will make it out to me. And that doesn't mean that they don't have an affinity and a love for and a respect for their former club. They can have all of that but they're not playing for them anymore. You know who you should have respect for? The people that are paying you, the club that is taking you in, the fans that are there to watch you and support you because you are on their team. And you are, in a certain sense, disrespecting them. I I agree. I think you're disrespecting your current club. When the other 10 players on the field are all ecstatic running around and you have this sourpuss face like you're upset that you scored, Mohamed Salah spent two seasons with Roma. I mean, come on. And they sold him for not that much money, so they clearly didn't value him that much. So to me, he should be allowed to celebrate if he scores this week, and he should have celebrated last week. All right, we'll move on to the last topic. There's some, I guess, breaking news regarding the NASL that you wanted to touch on. I just wanted uh, yeah, so people this week will be talking about Rocco Camiso, the president owner of the uh, New York Cosmos. He came out this uh, this week with a offering, if you will, a I guess it's a peace offering, in that he wants to meet with U.S. Soccer. They are in litigation with U.S. Soccer, uh, he and the NASL, and he offered it with a five hundred million dollar offer to inject this in to help the NASL. But it has all sorts of caveats in it. And I'm not going to get into the weeds and, and, and all the details uh, of this. Rocco Camiso, when he speaks, people listen. Because he says sometimes some really interesting and at times crazy, uh, crazy things. He's a huge, bigger-than-life character. The sport is better having him in. He riles people up. He ruffles feathers. He irritates people near and dear, near and dear to my heart. But when it comes to this, this is a lot of money that he is talking about. And one of those caveats is, is promotion relegation. So how serious this ends up being, I don't, I don't know. But I think people are going to talk about it because of the price tag associated or the, uh, the offering, if you will, of this massive amount of money to the league that we know is in tatters right now. And who knows how long it's going forward. I don't know what USSF is going to do. They obviously are very focused right now on the 2026 World Cup bid, as is Carlos Cordero, the president right now, who is leading that effort from a U.S. soccer standpoint. But it'll be interesting to see how this all flushes out from a legal perspective. And then a willingness with a lot of money to pump that into soccer uh, is that going to come to fruition going forward? It's going to be uh, wonderful to see if that happens. And I will finish this by talking about Rocco Camiso and Ricardo Silva, both owners of NASL and both folks that have advocated for promotion relegation and have been very critical of the current leadership when it comes to U.S. soccer, the affiliation with uh, Major League Soccer, uh, the affiliation with Soccer United Marketing. I did a uh, State of the Union earlier in our existence uh, where I talked about our friend uh, Eric Winalda, who we know ran for president of U.S. soccer. As Rocco Camiso and Ricardo Silva are throwing out these massive amounts of, uh, of monies that they want to put towards soccer, I submit to you this. They should take some of that money, and I think that they should put it towards Eric Winalda. Eric Winalda, okay, carried their water. Eric Winalda fought their fight. And in that process, he was used by them. Now, 
He was a willing participant. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he understood the risks of doing that. But this is a guy, as I said, that took that message and took it to the people. And at times, Eric was uh, criticized. At times, Eric was abrasive. At times, Eric, I'm sure, made friends and made enemies through it all. But ultimately, he was their messenger. And so when they are looking at being uh, involved in soccer and putting forward ideas, I think that they should also remember the people that have helped put those ideas out there in the public and the people that they have used, like an Eric, uh, like an Eric Winalda. That's all, all I'll say about that. I'll be interested to see if there is an association and a partnership going forward between Eric Winalda and these two guys that are obviously loaded and have plenty of money and uh, certainly have the capability of having Eric Winalda be involved in the things that they do. All right, is that it, David? Yep. All right, we come to the end of our show, and at the end of each and every show, we have our one big thing from today's podcast. It'll go back to the very beginning of the State of the Union and the association with our president. President Trump, as we know, uh, has publicly, uh, for the first time, tweeted about the World Cup, uh, the potential World Cup in 2026. And as I mentioned in my State of the Union, anytime that President Trump is involved in something, it comes with baggage. And there are challenges. And there is certainly good and bad. That's what the president has built his name and his brand on. And that's how he goes about his job as president. I, I think that this is a good thing. And I think it's also good in terms of the timing. Because had this happened closer to the actual vote, it might not have had as much impact or the impact that it had might have been more serious in terms of swaying people. So if there is a hindrance in what in the association with the President of the United States for the potential World Cup, there is time to soothe whatever problems and challenges have arisen from this. I don't think that there's a lot. I think that this was smart. I think that this was strategic. Regardless, and I'm not talking about our political differences or anything like that. I'm talking about how having the President of the United States be public and be engaged about the potential of a World Cup, as you so rightly mentioned, that he's not even going to be president when it comes about in 2026. That is ultimately a good thing. And the risks, while they are there, the benefits outweigh those risks. And let's hope it works. And let's hope, as I said, when that envelope is pulled out and the card is taken out, that ultimately it says U.S., Canada, and Mexico, World Cup 2026. David Mossy, it has been a pleasure, as it always is. All right, you can get uh, in touch with us in all different ways. Twitter, my Twitter handle is at Alexi Lawless. Your Twitter handle, uh, handle David Mossy, is? At Statman Mossy. At Statman Mossy. You can hit us up on Facebook. As I said, Twitter, all the different social media platforms out there. Use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, and we may use your questions in upcoming episodes. We will see you again uh, next week. We might have to do some moving around of the show uh, next week because there are some traveling issues going forward. But don't worry. We will get you a form of this podcast for, uh, for next week going forward despite those, uh, those travel issues. Uh, as always, thank you so much for listening to the State of the Union podcast. We will see you or hear you or you will hear us again next week. And as always, size the day. 